Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I don't know about you tonight, but there are some times in my life when I sit down and open the Word of God just in my regular routine and my devotional time. And You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you don't need any study Bible notes. You don't need any commentary helps. You just read it, and as soon as you read it, you go, yep, I understand what that means. Let me give you an example. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. I want to put it up on the screen. I want you to read it out loud with me. You ready? One, two, three. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Everybody got that? <laughs> That's pretty clear, right? It, it, we don't, it doesn't require a lot of help to understand what that verse says. But as sure as that's a reality, there are other times when I sit down and open the Word of God, either in my regular devotional time or in those times of just studying the Word of God, where I'll read a verse of Scripture or a passage of Scripture, and it's not like Philippians 2.4 at all. As a matter of fact, sometimes you read a verse of Scripture and you say, what in the world does that mean, right? Don't look at me spiritual. I know that you have the same thing happen to you, right? How many of you can identify with that? There are times you read something in the Bible and go, uh, God, I don't get that, right? Well, don't think that's unspiritual. Don't think that somehow you didn't get the decoder glasses when you got saved and you're missing something, all right? It's very normal and it's a very regular part of our Christian lives sometimes to read the Bible and see things that are very clear, very obvious, very understandable. And other times we read sections of Scripture and we have to say, I don't know what that means at all. Well, why do you think it is that way? Why was it not all as clear as Philippians 2.4 or, for example, John 3.16? Well, the bottom line is we don't know for sure why. There are some things in the Bible that are very clear and other things that aren't. But, but I, I think... There, there are a few reasons, at least in my opinion, why that's the case in the Bible. One of them is that God is very relational. We serve a relational God. God desires a relationship with you and with me. And because God is relational, He desires to be pursued. And for that reason, sometimes what we learn about Him in His Word comes very easy. But there are going to be other times where it will require a very intentional, diligent pursuit on our behalf to grow in that particular understanding or knowledge of God because God's relational. Another reason I think sometimes we read things in the Bible and it's not as clear to us, not only because God is relational, but also in my opinion, it's because God's big. You do realize God is big, right? That means that there are going to be some things about God 
that we simply don't understand. And when you read the Bible, you become very aware that it was not God's intent to remove all of the mystery about who He is from His Word. There are some things in the Bible that as we read them, we understand the mystery of God. And I don't know about you, but for me, on days when I'm facing circumstances that I don't understand, I am very thankful to know that there is a God who is bigger than my understanding, who is sovereign and in control of the things in my life that I don't understand. Amen? So those are some of the reasons why I think we don't always understand everything that we read. But in saying that, maybe you're saying, Pastor, why are you, you kind of setting us up with saying there's some stuff in the Bible that's hard to understand? You, you kind of feel like I'm leading you somewhere. Well, I am. If you're visiting with us, we are studying straight through the, first, the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And, and, and if you're visiting, we're just going verse by verse through this passage of Scripture. And the passage of Scripture that we come to this weekend in 1 Peter is one of those passages of Scripture that reveal both extremes of what I'm talking about. When we read the verses that I want to read for you tonight, you're going to hear some things in there, and you're going to go, oh, I get that. That's easy to understand. I don't even need you, Pastor, to tell me what that means, even though I'm going to anyway. You're going to say, I don't, I don't need you to do that. I get that part of it. But there's some other parts of what I'm going to read for you tonight that you're going to hear it and go, what in the world does that mean? mean. Now, before I read it for you, let me read to you what William Barclay, a, 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 a linguistic scholar who, who re- writes about the New Testament, listen to what he says about the passage of Scripture that I'm about to read. He says, this is not only one of the most difficult passages in Peter's letter, it is one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. So what we're about to read is one of those passages of Scripture. Part of it, very clear. The other part, not so much. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that we do every week when we prepare to teach God's Word here, we'll back up a few weeks from whatever weekend is coming, and we have a team of our pastors. Sometimes it's three, four, five, six of us will get in a room, and we'll spend a couple of hours with the text, just wrestling with that text of Scripture, trying to understand the big idea. When we all got in a room together and we simply started by reading out loud the verses that I'm going to read for you. By the time we got finished reading, the collective wisdom in the room was we have absolutely no idea what this means. So let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once For all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, now so far we're doing okay. Amen? I mean, that's the part we read that and go, what are you talking about, Pastor? I get that. That's clear, right? Hey, sometimes you read stuff and it's clear, but let's read on. Verse 19. In which... Also he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Starting to get muddy yet, no pun intended. Verse 21. Corresponding to that, 
Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now you see what I'm talking about, right? Wouldn't you love to have had the task of unpacking that to 2,500 people today? Amen? Well, that's what we've been doing all day is unpacking what this text of Scripture says. Now, here's what I want to try to do. I want to take two approaches to this text of Scripture. First of all, I want us to try to look at this from a big picture standpoint. And here's what I mean by that. How does all of this fit together? Because what we just read is one paragraph in the Scripture. And because of the way Simon Peter wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, in this paragraph there is a message that is trying to be communicated here clearly through the Spirit of God. So what is that overarching, big picture, 30,000 foot idea? Then here's the second approach I want to take. What are some practical applications out of this big picture that you and I can walk out of here with tonight and apply to our lives in 2015? So let's start with the big picture. And I want to give it to you in three big statements. Number one, the gospel is the good news. If you believe that, say amen. amen. The gospel is the good news. Verse 18 for us is a very simple verse of Scripture. And what it really does is in one verse, it, it compacts the entirety of the gospel into one statement. 1 Peter 3.18 is very much like John 3.16. It takes the whole message of the gospel, and in one sentence, we get the totality of the gospel. For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The gospel is good news. But in saying that, it implies that there is also some bad news, right? If the gospel is good news, then what is the bad news? Well, let me give it to you in two verses of Scripture. First of all, I want you to look on the screen at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 describes the predicament that every human being finds themselves in. I want you to read it off the screen with me. You ready? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. Did you hear it? That verse really said it in two ways. First of all, it talks about a, a past tense expression. For all have sinned. It's done. It's already happened. And that little word sin, where it comes from, is a Greek word that was borrowed from the field of archery. When an archer was going to go out and one of the predominant hunting tools of the day in the ancient world was the bow and arrow, when they were going to practice, they would set up a target. And on that target, they would identify a bullseye. And then the archer would remove themselves away from the target to the distance that they were trying to perfect. And the archer would step back with the bow and arrow, and he would continue to take shots trying to hit the bullseye. Every time the archer missed the bullseye, they called it hamartia, which is the Greek word that's translated in Romans 3.23, sin. Sin means missing the mark. The word sin 
teaches us and reveals that God has a standard. God, His righteousness has been revealed. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that every one of us in our past, every human being, no one is excluded. We have all missed the mark that God designed as His standard of righteousness. Every human being on planet Earth has missed the mark. But it gets even more serious. He said all have sinned, past tense, and fall short of the glory of God, present tense. Here's what he's saying. Not only have we already sinned, we all have sinned, but we, present tense, continuously fall short of God's standard of righteousness. We continuously do not measure up. Meaning that even if we realized we've sinned in the past and we wanted to try with our very best effort to get over our sin in the past by now earning a, a favorable position before God. Romans 3.23 says not only have we all blown it in the past by missing the mark of God's design, but every one of us with the lives that we live continuously day by day falls short of God's standard of righteousness, meaning that we are hopelessly and helplessly lost. There's nothing we can do to change our position. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now you hear that and you say, Pastor, I hear you, but, but I hear what you're saying is that nobody's perfect. And I know that. What's the big deal that nobody is perfect? Well, let me show you the second verse. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, look what it says. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Here's what that verse of Scripture says. Every one of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. And because of that, we're separated from a relationship with God. Now that's significant because the Bible teaches us that every human being was created to live their lives in fellowship with God. Meaning that according to the Bible, you cannot experience real life. Life as the Creator intended it to be experienced. You cannot experience real life apart from a relationship with God. And the Bible says because of our sin, we're all separated from a relationship with God. Meaning that sin and the fact that we've all sinned and continuously fall short of God's standard means that we've been robbed of the very essence of life for which we were created. It's as if this finger represented me and let's just say this other finger represents God. What the Bible is teaching us here, this finger represents me, this finger represents God. And let's let this little notebook here represent sin. Sin has separated us from God. And no matter how hard we try, unless sin gets dealt with, unless sin gets removed, we cannot have access to God. We cannot have fellowship with God. We cannot have a relationship with God. That's the bad news. 
Every one of us have sinned against God. Every one of us continues to sin against God. And because of our sin, we're cut off from a relationship with God. There is the bad news, but here's the good news. God did for us what we could not do left to ourselves. I could not deal with my sin problem. But here's what the gospel says. God dealt with our sin. And I want to show you how he did that. First of all, the Bible here says that God dealt with our sin. And, and that means that it's not something that you and I did. We didn't figure out a way to deal with our sin. God dealt with our sin. The Bible says in verse 18, For Christ also died for our sins, so that He might bring us to God. It's what God did. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for our sin to be forgiven. God has made a way for our sin to be dealt with so that we could be, by grace, given a relationship with God. It's the same thing the Bible says in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that, listen to the pronouns, He gave His only begotten son. It's what God did. The gospel is the good news, the story of what God did because he loved us to restore us back into fellowship with him. God dealt with our sin. Second thing I want you to see is God dealt with our sin in Christ. You see what it says? For Christ also died for our sins. Then he said this, the just for the unjust. If you don't read it carefully, you miss the implication there. The word just is a singular noun. The word unjust is a plural noun. Meaning you could literally translate the phrase this way. Christ also died for our sins once for all. The just one for the unjust many. You see, Jesus did not die for our sin so that you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus died for our sin because we couldn't. There was nothing we could do to earn a right standing with God. And so God in His divine sovereignty and wisdom and infinite love sent His only Son, Jesus, as God in the flesh. Jesus lived a sinless life. And on the cross, He offered that life for our sins. And He rose again from the dead. God dealt with our sins in Christ. I'll give you the third statement. God dealt with our sins once and for all. Did you hear that little phrase in verse 18? Christ died for our sins once for all. Here's what that means. All that needed to be done. This is such good news. Listen to this. All that needed to be done to remove our sin and bring us back into relationship with God was accomplished in Jesus death, burial, and resurrection. That, that statement, once for all, is a statement of finality. And it's, it's, it's speaking to and pointing us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, God gave His people a sacrificial system. But God didn't give the people in the Old Testament a sacrificial system as a different way of salvation. You see, God gave them the sacrificial system as a picture pointing them to the coming of a Messiah. 
The sacrificial system was never given to atone for sin and to take away sin. It was given to point people to the reality that they could not atone for their own sins, but ultimately there would be a sacrifice. And so the priests daily would stand ministering in the temple, sacrifices on behalf of the people as a picture that one day the Messiah would come and give an ultimate sacrifice. I want to read it to you. Look on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, listen to this, which can never take away sins. The sacrificial system was never given to take away our sins. It was a picture that was pointing to a Messiah who would come. But look what it says. But he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, what does it say next? Sat down. Did you notice it said the priest stands daily? The priest never sat down. Why? Because they'd never completed their task. Sin had never been atoned for. But the Bible says Jesus came. He died on a cross. And when Jesus died on a cross and rose again from the dead, he ascended back to the Father that First Peter writes about here in chapter 3, verse 22. And when he ascended back to the Father, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because everything that needed to be done to atone for your sin and my sin, past, present, and future, was finished in the completed work of Christ on the cross. God dealt with our sins once and for all. Here's the fourth implication. God dealt with our sin so that we could enjoy His presence. Did you hear it? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Anytime you see that little word, so that, that little phrase, so that, in the Bible, you need to pay attention to it because here's what it means. It means here's the reason why? Or here's the purpose. Christ died for our sins once for all. Here's why. So that He might bring us to God. What did we lose because of sin? Access to the very presence of God. What are we given back because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Access to the very presence of God Himself. In the ancient Greek world, whenever there was a king or a leader that had his court in a palace or in a temple or in some place of leadership, that king had an officer or official in his court who was called the prosagogais. Prosagogais. You say, what does that mean? Well, in English, it's best translated the introducer. And what the prosagogais was responsible for is access to the king. No one was allowed access into the presence of the king. No one was worthy to be in the presence of the king until the prosagogais, the introducer, first uh, called them worthy and invited them in. And the prosagogais, the introducer, would usher them into the presence of the king and, and introduce them to the king and introduce them to fellowship with the king. What does that have to do with First Peter chapter 3? The word prosagogais is the noun form of the verb that's used here so that he might bring us. Here's the point. You and I were separated 
from the presence of God. We had no access into the king's presence. Because of our sin, we were isolated. There was nothing we could do to make ourselves worthy. We needed somebody who could declare us to be worthy and somebody that could take us by the hand and usher us into the presence of the king and introduce us to fellowship with God himself. And the Bible says that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead so that he might declare us to be worthy and usher us into the presence of God himself and restore the fellowship that we lost because of sin. God dealt with our sin so that we could enjoy his presence. The gospel is the good news. Let me give you the second big picture statement. The gospel has always been good news. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, I want to read again verses 19 and 20 because we, we just unpacked the verse 18, which is the part that's pretty clear. Verse 19 and 20 says this, In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. When I read that for the first time a few weeks ago, I looked at the Lord and said, Lord, I don't have a clue. What in the world does that mean? So I started with our team. We started digging in and researching this. And let me tell you what I figured out. There's a whole lot of people who don't have a clue. This is one of those sections of Scripture. You can read eight different people and their writings on this passage of Scripture, and you can get eight different responses. If you're somebody like me, you're one of those what they might call a Bible nerd, right? You like to dig in and know everything. Let me give you a resource that you need to get. On this particular passage of Scripture, Wayne Grudem wrote a commentary on 1 Peter in a series called the Tyndale, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E, Tyndale New Testament Commentary you want to go deep into these verses, you need to get his commentary because he has an appendix to that commentary on 1 Peter that's over 40 pages long simply addressing these two verses of Scripture. And all of the diversity of interpretation that surrounds these two verses of Scripture. And after reading all of it, let me tell you where I am. I am not sure what these two verses of Scripture mean. I'm not. But let me give you my opinion for what it's worth, all right? Now, I'm telling you up front, this is my opinion. I'm not dogmatic. I'm not sure. We can disagree about this. My opinion and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's, but that's all it's going to get you. But here's my opinion of what these two verses are saying. These two verses are Peter teaching us that the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of Christ in Noah preached through Noah for 120 years the message of turning from sin and believing in the salvation 
that was promised by God. If you remember the story of Noah in the book of Genesis, for 120 years, Noah faithfully proclaimed the message of God. He faithfully preached for 120 years for people to turn from their sin and believe in God and believe in God's gracious offer of salvation and redemption. He talked about a flood, a judgment that was coming, and that God had made a way for men to be spared the judgment of God, and Christ in Noah preached that message. And here's what Peter is linking that to verse 18 with this idea. Peter is reminding us that the same gospel we preach today, there is a judgment that is coming, but God in His grace has made a provision. And if we will turn from our sin and embrace the gospel, we can be saved. The same gospel that we preach today is the same gospel that was preached through Noah thousands of years ago. The gospel is the good news, and the gospel has always been the good news. Here's the third part of the statement. The gospel is still the good news. Look at verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. No, no, no. Wait a minute, Pastor Vance. Um, I was here two or three weeks ago when you preached a message on baptism. And Pastor Vance, I distinctly remember you saying out of your mouth that baptism does not save you. Now, I, I, I know, Pastor Vance, I don't hear everything that you say, but I'm telling you, I heard you three weeks ago, and you distinctly said out of your mouth, baptism does not save anybody. To get baptized without a relationship with Jesus is just a cheap bath. Baptism doesn't bring salvation. And yet, Pastor, the Bible says right here, baptism now saves you. Uh, uh, Pastor Vance, could you explain that, please? Well, first of all, let me, let me say this. Anytime you hear a teacher of the Word of God, you need to always go back and examine what the Scripture says. Because the authority is not in the teacher. The authority is in the Word of God. The Word of God. I challenge you, everything that comes out of somebody's mouth that stands in this pulpit, every word of it, you need to measure it against the plumb line of the Word of God. Second thing I'd say to you about your question that you've asked me tonight is, did you read the rest of the verse? You see, one of the greatest things you can do in interpreting the Scripture is always read it in its context. And there are whole denominations that have built a system of theology off that phrase that says, baptism now saves you. The problem is, they didn't read what's in the dot, dot, dot. The dot, dot, dot that I put up there is very significant. Let's read the rest of it. Put it on the screen. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. You hear what he's saying? Baptism saves you. Not getting in the water, not getting in a, a, a tub of water and, and being washed that way, that's not what saves you. It's what that pictures. Look what he says. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He says, hey, the gospel is not in baptism. The gospel is in what baptism portrays, that you've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Here's what Peter's saying. The same gospel that was preached through Noah, that we're to turn from our sins and believe in the promise of God for salvation, 
salvation. It's the same gospel Peter says that I'm preaching to you, that Christ died for our sins so that we could be ushered in the presence of God. And Peter says it is the same gospel that is bringing salvation to you today. In Christ, I can be forgiven of my sin and be given a relationship with God. So here's the big picture of what Peter's saying. The gospel is the good news. The gospel has always been the good news. And the gospel is still good news. That's the link that runs all of these verses together. Now, before I let you go, let me give you three statements of practical application. Practical application number one. You must believe in the gospel. The gospel is only good news to those who believe. Look back at verse number 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he, listen to this, might bring us to God. The way that is worded in the Greek New Testament, the way it is constructed, it's describing potential action, meaning something that is possible, something that might happen for you and for me. Meaning that God in Christ has made it possible. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus dealt with our sin. But only those who believe embrace God's gracious gift of salvation. Say, where do you see that? Well, look at verse 20. Verse 20, he says that Christ had preached in Noah to those who once were disobedient. The word disobedience is an interesting Greek word. It's a compound word. The first half of that word means without. The second half of the word means to be persuaded put it together and it means those who haven't been persuaded there are those who hear the gospel who hear the good news but they are not persuaded to believe the good news and the Bible says (coughs) about them that God's forgiveness although available to them is not applied to them. Everybody's not okay because Christ died. We must believe in the gospel. That's why John wrote it this way in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 11. He said, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who, say it out loud, Believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, say it out loud, know that you have eternal life. The implication of this text is when you believe in Jesus, when you believe in the gospel, you can know that you've been forgiven. You can know that your sin has been dealt with in Christ. You can know that you have a relationship with God. But the other side of that verse is if you don't believe, you can know your sin hasn't been forgiven. And that you've not been reconciled to God. 
the first practical application is you must believe the gospel. And when I say you must believe the gospel, I don't mean just to acknowledge some facts about the gospel or to say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm saying you must believe the gospel, that Christ died for your sin, that he rose again, and that you surrender your life to him to be Lord and Savior. What what does it mean to believe? Well, one of the best illustrations I've ever heard was about a 19th century acrobat. So a 19th century acrobat whose name was Blondin. And Blondin would travel all over the world and do amazing acrobatic feats. And in these amazing acrobatic acts that he would perform, people were just amazed at his ability. And one of the things that that he did that was probably his most famous acrobatic act is that he stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And Blondin would would step on that tightrope across Niagara Falls, about 150 feet above the falls, and he would just walk across the edge of that tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. And he would do that in crowds by the hundreds and by the thousands would gather to watch as he would tightrope walk. And you can imagine how the crowds would gather. I mean, some of you are gasping just because I'm on the edge of the stage, right? And it's about a three-foot drop here. He was on top of a tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls. And he's just walking ever so gently across the tightrope. He would do amazing things. They say that he would take a wheelbarrow and he would push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on that tightrope while he was walking behind it. One time he took a a little stove out to the middle of Niagara Falls on this tightrope and they say that he literally fried an egg on this stove. Well, One day he got really bold and he got on one side and there were thousands there gathered to watch him and he invited a man to get on his back and a man got on his back and with that man on his back, he again began to walk across Niagara Falls. And people are just watching with anticipation and with every step thinking, man, he's not only going to kill himself, he's going to kill this other guy. And they're watching and finally Blondin steps onto the other side of the shore there on Niagara Falls. And you can imagine the elation as people begin to cheer and celebrate and scream and and clap and applaud. And Blondin said, do you believe that I can do that again? And all the crowd said, yes, we believe. And he looked at one man and said, then get on. The man looked at him and said, you're crazy, sir. You see, to believe in Jesus is to get on. It's to come to that place in your life where you surrender everything you are to everything that he is. And you acknowledge that you are sinful before God and that you are separated from God And that Christ and Christ alone has dealt with your sin. And in an act of faith and desperation, you throw yourself on the mercy of God, trusting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, That is the difference between believing something on the intellectual level only and believing in the sense of belief the Bible calls for when it asks for us to believe on Christ. To believe in the biblical sense is to surrender yourself to Christ, to trust Him, to carry you over the churning cataracts and wild whirlpools of life. The other belief is only intellectual assent. As good as the good news is, it's only good news if you believe. Some of you have sat here week after week after week and you've heard the gospel. Some of you have friends that have shared the gospel with you. Being around the gospel is not the same thing as believing in the gospel. Knowing the gospel is not the same thing as believing in the gospel. You must believe in the gospel. Second practical application. You must believe in the gospel while 
there is time. Peter writing says in verse 20, he talks about the patience of God that kept waiting in the days of Noah. The picture that is portrayed here is that for 120 years, God waited patiently for people to respond to the good news. The word patience that's used here by Peter is a word that means to restrain before proceeding to action. The word wait is a word that at its root means to look for, to wait eagerly for. For 120 years, Christ in Noah preached there is a judgment that is coming. Christ in Noah preached that you can be saved from that judgment. Christ in Noah preached that the way to be saved is to believe in the message of God and trust His offer of salvation. For 120 years, God in His grace waited patiently. But then the judgment came. You say, how does that apply to me today? Let, let me show you what Peter wrote in his second letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Look what it says. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Some of us that have been Christians for a while, we think, man, why didn't the Lord come on back? Let's just get the party started. Amen. Let's, let's get heaven going. Let's go. Look, the Lord's not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You must believe the gospel while there is time. God in His grace right now is making known to you His gift of salvation. That in Christ He loves you. And He has given everything in Christ to redeem you to Himself. He has made a provision to reconcile you to Himself. But don't mistake God's patience and God's grace with the reality that judgment is coming. We just read verse 9. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Listen, right now, God in His grace is waiting patiently. God in His grace is looking for those who will respond to His gracious gift of salvation. God in His grace is longing for us to be saved. But one day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning you won't know when it's coming, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The judgment of God against sin is coming. You must believe the gospel while there's time. Here's the last implication. And, and I understand that, that this is what I'm about to say is heavy. But if I don't share what I'm about to share with you, I don't love you. Here's the third application. Rejecting the gospel is embracing the judgment of God. 
When I read this passage of Scripture, although there was a lot of it, I, I didn't and don't to this day completely understand. There was one phrase in this verse of Scripture that rocked me. I couldn't get away from it. It's still, it's changed the way I think about even some of the songs that we sing. It's found in verse number 19. He says, in which he, Christ, went and made proclamation. Talking about that time when Christ and Noah preached to who? The spirits who are now in prison. You got to realize what Peter was writing here was thousands of years after Noah walked on planet earth. And here's what he's saying. Those people that rejected God's gracious offer of salvation, those that rejected the proclamation of Christ in Noah are now in prison. Meaning that for thousands of years They have been in hell, and it has only just begun. Now in prison. You say, Pastor, are you you saying that you believe in a real, literal, eternal hell? Listen, I do. I believe it's what the Scripture teaches. Let Let me share with you a couple reasons why I believe it. First of all, I believe it because Jesus believed and taught it. Jesus said more about the reality of hell than any other person in the Bible. 13% of Jesus' teachings are about hell and judgment. More than half of Jesus' parables relate to the eternal judgment of sinners. Robert Riarborough said it this way, What Christians have believed about hell has been constructed almost entirely out of what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. If the historic doctrine of hell is to be set aside, it is most of all Jesus' teachings that must be neutralized. Here's what that means. If hell's not real, Jesus is a liar. And if you can't believe everything Jesus said, why would you believe anything Jesus said? I believe it's real because Jesus believed it and taught it. I believe it's real because every New Testament author believed it and taught it. You examine the New Testament for yourself. Every author of the Bible addresses the subject of eternal punishment of those who reject the gospel. I believe hell's real because the church throughout history has believed and taught it. Jesus taught it and believed it. The disciples, the early church fathers, the writers of the scripture believed it and taught it. And the church in history. George Whitfield is one of the great revivalists that was used of God to see millions come to Christ in both the Americas and in Europe. Listen to what George Whitfield said about hell. He said, burning like a living, like a livid coal, not for an instant or a day, but millions and millions of ages at the end of which people will realize they're no closer to the end than when they began. Never ever to be delivered from that place. Now listen. Please hear my heart. If you're a guest and you don't know me well, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Okay, that's not, that's not what I am. But I am somebody who believes the book. And, and, and I'm not worth my salt. And I don't love you at all if I don't teach you what the book says. 
If it's not what the book says, then disregard it. But, but when you read this book, those who reject the gospel are embracing the judgment of God. Now here's a closing thought. We know it's not God's desire for anyone to go to hell. As a matter of fact, God didn't create hell for people. God created hell, as you study the scriptures, for the devil and his angels that fell in eternity past. The only people who go to hell are those who reject the gospel of Jesus. They don't believe in God's promise of salvation. God doesn't desire the good news. Listen, the good news is that God loves you. And God has sent His Son to redeem you and to save you and to reconcile you so that you and I can spend eternity with Him. We don't have to go to hell. But if we reject the gospel, we embrace the judgment of God. Somebody could say, Pastor, why? I don't understand how a loving God could send somebody to hell. Well, look what, look what Ralph Powell said. He said, if the question be raised, how can a loving God send man to an everlasting hell? It must be replied that God does not choose this destiny for men. They freely choose it for themselves. God simply concurs in their self-chosen way and reveals the full consequences of their evil choice. The gospel is the good news. You and I must believe the gospel. (coughs) We must believe the gospel. While there's time. And to reject the gospel. Is to embrace. The judgment of God. For all eternity.